It's the last day of 2021, and I thought that I would drop another Web3 episode on you. It's been a very wild ride, and we've had some really interesting discussions. And my good friend Brian Hall, who is a data scientist slash CTO, sold his company, joined Seismic, and is with us to talk through some of the complexities we're facing in the current primitives and building blocks of Web3. No, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm excited to be here. I, yeah, I've been, you know, doing SaaS and AMI, AIML and data for a long time, also in the 30-year club with a bunch of you guys. And yeah, just recently I, I wrapped up what I was doing at Seismic. So I've been gone for about three months. And when I stepped back and took the time to look at the world again, obviously a lot of stuff is going on in blockchain with the stuff that's happened in DeFi and with NFTs in the last year. From seven CTOs, my name is Etienne De Bruyne, and you're in the CTO studio. It finally convinced me. You know, I, I looked at the tech a bunch of times over history, and and I always was turned off every time because it, it felt like kind of fringe cases and a lot of scammy stuff going on. Even through the ICO boom, I, I didn't want to get involved because I, I just didn't see the, the real-world cases. But... But DeFi has really changed all that. It really shows the the power of pieces of the tech from trust to the distributed ledger, getting get the banks out of the middle and a lot of that stuff is fantastic. And then NFT shows a lot of promise. So I felt like it was time to reorient myself. And then I'm actually starting a, a startup in the mental health space, which I think uh, will end up leaning on a bunch of blockchain technologies. I think we're really at the point where we can build apps that have an impact in the world and are not just about making money. Or like, I don't consider the DeFi stuff just about making money, but it's not just a speculative grab. It's about actually having an impact. Now, you guys, I listened to the previous podcasts and you guys talked about a lot of those pieces, uh, which I think are really important. But but we're starting to real engineers with a lot of history have been getting involved in over time. But I think a lot of people are really attracted now because it's actually possible now, even though the tools are super rough, to actually start making some apps that are they're impactful with kind of the regular world using these new technologies. So yeah, kind of like I'm super excited. Like it's it's fun to do engineering again versus the stuff we've been doing for a really long time. So I think it's a it's pretty exciting time. Welcome, Brian. And for the focus of this chat, we've done a lot of grappling with an intro to Web3 ish. Last week, we spoke a bit about the timing and, and some considerations the CTO should have in committing development resources or making the business case in existing companies. Today would be fun to have a, a view forward as to what is possible. What does this whole world make possible for us and potentially loosen the shackles of the real world business viability? What aspects of Web3 can be implemented or adopted or thought about in a way that could genuinely create a, a better world or more opportunity. I, I like that focus. I, I think there's a role for the CTO to understand Web3 and to be, to be a voice in their company to help people understand. But it, it feels to me like these technologies are more disruptive than they are iterative for most businesses. It'll either not be appropriate or it'll disrupt your business. So I really wonder whether the CTO is going to be able to do anything other than say, here's this technology that's going to disrupt our business. We can jump on it or not, but most businesses won't because that's how businesses work. And then a lot of these tech people, it feels to me, if they're inspired by it, will exit and go do something. So anyway, I, I think 
that's an undercurrent for a CTO. It just doesn't feel to me like a technology. You're just going to be able to start to incorporate, hire some people. And it doesn't feel like that at all. So I just want to have that as, a, as an undercurrent. I don't know what to do with that, but as a group of CTOs advising CTOs, I think it's, it's important. Yeah. And I, I love that you brought that up because it's one of the core tenets of what I believe the role of the CTO is. The fact that we are the tech person to the C-suite. A lot of times we have to come to the C-suite in ways to show them what is possible. This could disrupt our business or, hey, this is what we see coming. Or these are the things that I propose we invest some time in to understand how our landscape is going to change and what our responsibility as a company is to embrace these technologies and to analyze how it changes our product offering. And I like to put this in the quadrant of shielding the organization. What is the disruptive change that the C-suite is running the business, building out their plans, but we as the builders and the beholders of the technology have that added responsibility to advise and counsel and lead and guide our C-suites on how that landscape is changing. And so I think it's critical that we as CTOs are talking amongst ourselves like this to say, hey, not only what is changing or not only how is the landscape changing or what is the revolution, but how do I communicate that in a way that makes sense to our leadership at our company? In some cases, it won't make any sense because the disruption is going to be too big and maybe people will leave or maybe people will have to start from a completely different set of values. I love that CTOs are in these conversations and let us grapple amongst ourselves so that we can be better advisors and leaders to our C-suite. So that's how I see it. I think you brought up something interesting where you said the word revolution. And so many times when we hear everybody talking about what Web3 is, it's the, it's just, hey, we're just going to flip over the table and we're going to rebuild everything from scratch and it's going to be this whole brand new thing. But I heard someone say, it might have been on the last show, Augustine, it might have been something that you said, but Web 2 didn't completely replace Web 1. And you know, Web 3, I don't think is going to completely replace Web 2 because the technology in a lot of cases doesn't really warrant rebuilding some of the things that work just fine and will be part of the future. So it's really, where does the enabling features of the things that we'll be doing in Web 3 either complement or replace or, you know, or augment the things that we're already doing. So I think as CTOs, it's our perspective there can be, where does it make sense to put these things that wind up being more value add for everybody together and for particular sets of customers or things like that. So I try to approach it from that respect. Like the web as we know it today is not going away, but this new technology is going to be really key in big aspects of it going forward. So where are those and where do we play a role and where do our organizations play a role? Yeah, I think that's definitely the way that I see the the transition happening. It seems very unlikely to me that the database technology that Web3 represents is going to replace very fast, very optimized AWS, SQL Server, whatever. But at the margin, there are certainly things that seem exciting to me. I think we talked about some of them in the last show. Authentication as a general category of thing that could very easily go in a Web3 direction so that we don't all have to authenticate through Google or Facebook or whatever, but have different authentication mechanisms like 
it could actually be fairly simple and straightforward to support that as a different authentication mechanism if you have a SaaS platform. Again, just to dip your toe in the water, it doesn't require a huge amount of dev resources to do that. And now you at least have, you've got a stake in the ground. So as a starting point, that doesn't seem crazy to me. I used to give this talk back in the day called Battling Code Illiteracy. And part of our job has always been, as not just CDOs, but as developers, has always been to translate what's possible, right, within our ecosystem, within our space. When I said the last time about how we're, we're lacking creativity in the space uh, at the moment, uh, a lot of that, I think, comes from a lack of creativity on the part of us that are entering the space, trying to figure out what we can do, trying to figure out and trying to figure out creative ways to, to, to do this. And the non-technical folks within the or companies or organizations that we're in aren't going to be able to necessarily figure that out like they did with Web2. It'll, and if they do, it'll take a couple of years, I think, before there's enough of an understanding on the non-technical side to figure out what's possible, what's feasible. Like the other day, I was looking at different examples of smart contracts and found one, one example of a Twitter smart contract or, or, or there's a Tinder smart contract for doing matches between component data sets and that kind of thing. And so that's the kind of creativity I think that we are going to need to play around with and figure out, okay, like what are the examples that are out there? What is possible? What is feasible? What are people doing? And then bring those articulations back to the ecosystem, back to, uh, to our companies or organizations or whoever we're, we're working with to be like, you know, hey, I think I can do X and I think if we can do X and I think we can do that. Now, what does the business think of that and, and how does the business think it can make money from that? Uh, but that's always been our job, right? It's always been our job to determine what's possible within the frameworks and the architectures that we're building and, and not necessarily, and then come back and say, hey, where can the business, think, does, where does the business think it can make money off of this? I, I listened to the, I, I think your point, Michael, is exactly right. I listened to your you guys' previous podcast. And one thing that, that I was struck by uh, it is really that creativity issue. As much as we all try, like we, we look and we say, these technologies provide these new things in the world. And those are really interesting. But then we, we keep coming back to like ideas around slightly enhancing or replacing things that already exist because that's what's most obvious even though new technology like this that is not what's going to be make it take off right that is not at all what's going to happen it's going to be new use cases that are surprising that make the best use of these new features and it's those unexpected things that that really are the things that take off DeFi got lots of traction not for any other reason other than you cut the bank out of the middle and the trust lets you do that and the, the ledger lets you do that and then that 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 money can go to the both parties involved that's really amazing but that's the traction but even that's a pretty probably in history will be a pretty obvious vanilla first step. It won't be the, the things that are really interesting. So I, I think that the creativity point is a really important one. There are people out there who are proposing things across the spectrum of craziness. I think Balaji Srinivasan, he had a proposal around what he calls mirror table, which is this idea that startups, the way that you fund startups really sucks. Like you have to have these Carta things and you have to have DocuSign and all this stuff. And you can basically replace a lot of the components of this at first with just a mirror version of it on chain. So that you have all of the guarantees and assurances there. And then eventually that sort of gets integrated into the legal system. And now you remove that scaffolding and you have just a better solution. So again, is that crazy? Is that far out there? No, but maybe it's the next adjacent place that we can, again, colonize, plant a flag and colonize and get some slight improvements slowly. 
what I was going to ask actually you about is what would you think about in the, in the uh, framing of shielding, right? Shielding your company. There used to be something called a poor man's copyright where you could take, uh, mom used to do that. She'd write songs, she'd put them out and then she'd get this envelope, seal it, put the stamp on the crease and mail it back to herself. Yeah. Michael's nodding. I see it. And that would hold up in a court of law. If it came to, you had to defend your thing. Could you do something like that on a blockchain? Could companies or countries recognize that as a poor man's patent? I wouldn't throw out my IP today on the blockchain and say, I did it first. And then everybody else in China goes and makes a copy of it. But could that be used for something like a uh, patent or, or copyright in our system today? Within this space, there's this concept of code is law, right? Where it doesn't matter what the existing laws of the country or the place that you exist. If, if it's codified into the contract in some way, shape, or form, that that's the law that, that that's the accepted agreement between the two parties that you are accepting to by, 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 by orchestrating your, you know, by agreeing to the smart contract in, in some sense. And that, and that opens up a lot of can of worms around that, right? Like I could write a smart contract that's a lottery and the implementation within Ethereum is going to run it, even if it's illegal for me to do that within my country of origin. I have millions of people sign up for this lottery. And because from the, from the, from the infrastructure's perspective, code is law, then that it's going to execute regardless of what the ever-changing rules and regulations of a particular country or, or, or area is. The example that I can think of in terms of what you're talking about is the the harvest finance fork of urine finance, right? Harvest finance, harvest finance basically looked at what urine finance was doing and said, Hey, we like that model. We like what they did and we're going to copy it. <laughs> we're going to, we're going to slightly tweak it and do it a little bit better. Now, whether or not that's illegal from a court of law perspective is yet to be seen, but they did it and they executed it and they code is law. So they got it out there and people started signing up for it. And it was hugely successful. They took off almost like a billion dollars, you know, billion dollars in their token in terms of valuation of the token from that particular launch. And they had a whole bunch of things that they were doing and reasonings why that is and, and so forth. But then like you look at what happened then with the hack of Harvest Finance, and it was just a, a copy pasta of your finance and what they did. And then suddenly you have a situation where it, it, people call it a hack, but you look at it, it's not really a hack, right? That, it, it could be classified as a hack, Harvest Finance wrote the rules, like they codified the rules of the exchange. And for and to simplify what the hack was, basically, is they basically said, hey, a USDC, which is a stable coin, and a USDT have a one-to-one -one translation, meaning you can buy our token for one USDT, or you can buy our token for one USDC, and the prices are the same. But in reality, the prices are not the same, right? Like stable coins are stable to a point, to a degree, but you can flood a market with USDT or flood a market with USDC and, and, and arbitrarily change the availability and or the, the necessity of that stable coin. And so what the hacker did, and this, I, I don't know how familiar you guys are with flash loans. Flash loans are loans that you can take right now. I can literally go right up a smart contract and take a flash loan of $50 million. And, and like, this is exactly what, what the quote unquote hacker did in this case, and, and basically utilize that money within the context of the smart contract to do X. And the beauty of the code is law analogy is that it's all going to go back to the borrower anyway, because the system isn't going to allow me to, to thieve it and walk away with it per se. But what the author of this particular hack was able to do is able to basically manipulate the, an arbitrage, the difference between USDC and USDT. Uh, at, 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 to such a degree where he was basically buying and selling 
of these stable coins in exchange for the Harvest Finance token. And he was able to basically pull out roughly $24 million in arbitrage from Harvest. As soon as people found out that this happened, Harvest Finance just tanked. Like it went down like $540 million or something like that because everybody started pulling out of that particular token. And like, I say all this to say like, nobody really knows if that's illegal. <laughs> like, you know, it's not like you didn't manipulate securities markets. You didn't manipulate, you didn't break any laws per se. They, they, I think Harvest put out like a hundred thousand bounty to figure out who this guy was that pulled this off, but he didn't technically break the law. It, it, like you could maybe get him for market manipulation, but stable coins aren't really like he basically just saw the opportunity of the differences between USDC and USDT and took advantage of that way. And so there's going to be a lot of those sort of questions around how legal is this and, 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 and what's legal and what's not. And, and when, when it comes to the chains, when it comes to the smart contracts, remember, code is law, regardless of what country you're in. Making predictions is difficult, especially about the future. But one prediction that I am very comfortable making is CODA's law is not going to be a thing. In order for this to continue to grow 10x, 100x, we cannot have a situation where people have to be expert reviewers of Solidity code in order to be able to transact in our financial system. That's just not a reasonable expectation. And so this idea of CODA's law and, and there's no recourse and all that stuff, I feel like I feel very strongly that this is a temporary situation that will eventually get changed somehow. For example, even if it's not law in the sense of you're going to sue them in, in, in court in Delaware, maybe there's a DAO and that DAO takes it upon themselves to act a court and make judgments. And so every contract that is subject to regulation by this DAO, okay, well now this is something that we can be comfortable transacting in because at least we have some recourse if there's a bug in the contract or somebody scammed you or whatever. I think this idea of code as law is, is I mean, it, to libertarians out there, it feels like a great idea, but I can guarantee you that like the 100x people who aren't libertarians, this is terrifying and it keeps them away from this stuff. I agree with the regulatory stuff for normal people, for sure. And I, I think you're right. Like you, you can't just from a system reliability point of view, you can't use these things as building blocks or use them for major things if any little bug is going to, or any little vulnerability is going to cause a problem. But I, I think actually Ken was, I heard in what Ken was saying a slightly different point, which is a point about IP. And to me, when I look at this new world, it seems like a world where we don't have the same IP protections uh, as we did in the past. It's a world where somebody's building a machine that does something. Maybe it's a device, a, a DEX, maybe it's whatever it is. And as that machine gets critical mass, that's where the value comes. The value is not coming from the code. It's coming from the, the smart contract, the people's interaction, the funds they're committing, the staking. It's coming from everything all together. That's the machine you're building. It's not anymore that I have all this code that's just mine. It's private IP. It's protected. It's patented. I believe for a lot of these things, all of that is gone. It's not going to exist in this world in, in the same way as it did in the past. It's not that nothing's going to be private, but most of it's not going to be private. And things are going to move really fast because we're all sharing code. And I can just fork your project, have a better social contract with the users using it and be 10 times the size. I think that's a world that it's uncomfortable for me 
Uh, but I think that's a world I have to accept and then start working within those boundaries to solve problems um, more than I am worried about defending my IP and owning every shred of value from it. Yeah. And I'll say we've lived in that world. We just haven't accepted it or acknowledged it. Here's what I mean. You could put something on Kickstarter and maybe it's a unique new cable, the USB charger. But if you're not fast to market and it and you run your campaign over nine months, China will beat you in 40 days. So we think we have IP protections and there are treaties and such, but there are roguish countries that will just let people rip your IP and then use it. So I'm not sure that we have that much protection to begin with. And so that's one of the things, again, with Shield. So if we know that, then how we're responding today might inform how we can respond here. Yeah, and the challenge there obviously is that look, IP protections exist for a reason, at least in principle, they protect inventors. And so now we have a reason to create new things. And so this sort of, I'm not going to invent anything because I can't reap the the rewards from it. Like that's probably too far the other way. And so like, where does the happy balance lie between Disney has 80 year protections on the IP of their, of Mickey Mouse versus I can't invent anything because it's going to get ripped off in five seconds. There's a happy medium that sort of maximizes growth. And the thing I love about crypto and about Web3 is that it gives us a sandbox to be able to experiment, right? Like we can actually try to figure out where does this correct optimum lie? And that's, I think, a very exciting thing, maybe looking more long-term. We we already have this paradigm in the existing world, right? Like when open source was supposedly eating the the world in terms of software, we all started creating SaaS products and we all started building these SaaS products that maybe had open source tools or open source programs that were dependent on those SaaS products, right? And, And we created that extra layer of value sitting on top of the open source ecosystem. And this is no different with regards to what we call the on-chain versus off-chain dependencies, right? On-chain dependencies are the smart contracts, are the tokens that you build. They're the stuff that exists on the chain that everybody can see it is visible. But then you have like off-chain oracles, which interact with the contracts and say that they give you the price of a particular thing. And people might be able to to take advantage of those off-chain resources as well in their smart contracts. But I think when we're thinking about what to build, off-chain is more equivalent to the SaaS products that you would build on top of open source projects versus on-chain is what's publicly visible, publicly available, and publicly interactable. And that stuff can pretty much be copied. So it it behooves you to just open source that stuff uh, and make that stuff public. When you guys started mentioning open source, that really, like, every time I hear what DAOs are capable of, I always think of a DAO for an open source project actually seems like a really good idea where contributors could get paid in your, what, what's it called, like the token or whatever of that community. And if if SaaS products are built on top of these open source libraries, maybe there's a royalty that goes to that DAO, which could then get distributed amongst the people who contributed to it. My company has been involved in open source for a really long time and funding and how do you you know pay for maintainers? And then when you look at what's happening today with Log4j, it's two folks who are not paid or their software is powering half of the world. And this is, this is something that could maybe go a long way to help and solve some of those long-term issues that we've had with open source and IP and, and all of that. I'd love to understand, Frank, to the extent that you're seeing demand from customers and clients on blockchain stuff, like what are they interested in? What are they curious about? Is it just a 
the CEO told me I have to ask, or is it like are they legitimately wanting to know? There's some organizations that that I think could actually benefit from blockchain, and and maybe blockchain earlier was like it might not have been a perfect fit, but there's things that have since come out that are. I but I think what a lot of our clients are dealing with today that I think would be really valuable is what you were talking about earlier with authentication, but I broaden it more to identity generally. And so are they who they say they are? Can they do what they say they can? But then also the sovereignty that they have over their data and how they can, you know, choose to share that or not. And I think that's going to be something that comes to play pretty strongly with our client base. And then we're in the healthcare space. So I think everything going on with health data is going to be like, that's something that I actually wanted to to bring to you guys to talk about, because I, I feel like there's something really valuable there, but I'm not exactly sure what or where the angle is with respect to like data generally. Uh, then there's also like credentialing. I don't know. What is it? Universities can maybe mint NFTs that represent degrees that get transferred to someone's wallet. And that's how someone can prove that they have a degree or they have a certification or something like that. There's a lot of like really interesting aspects around identity and credentialing and all that I think would be maybe valuable to discuss. Because I feel like when I mentioned earlier how portions of Web3 are certainly going to be taking over the market, I think that's an area in Web2 where letting these corporations like own our identity and our data and it's not portable across platforms. I think this is just one of the things that are really ripe to just rip out of their hands and put back in the user's control. I, I think, Frank, that is a really interesting space. There's some stuff that's going on. I don't know if you're familiar with in Web2 land around health data. There's a company called Web API, a human API, and they basically have tapped data in uh, vast arrays of health organizations. And then when your insurance company or someone wants to verify or even your doctor wants to get access, you can they can pay human API and human API can get approval from the person and, and go collect the data. So there's people that are consolidating even in web too. I think it's really hard to understand how control of data um, will happen. I, I think web three does have a lot of tools that are going to help with that, but it's so thorny to use that, that I think it, it's really difficult. E even simple, simple things though are, are interesting in web three. A lot of people want to stay anonymous. So I've, I've applied to participate in some DAOs as a developer. I, I'm not doing web three very much. And that's it's a kind of a way to learn to soak up from people as I contribute. But when I go to, when I go to, to participate, my application, like they, they always say, don't dox yourself. Like they don't want to know your LinkedIn. They don't want to know your name. They don't want to know your phone number. They want some other reference. But in the web two world, like even my GitHub like account is me and LinkedIn is me. And I don't mind people knowing who I am, but in web three, that's weird. It's like, well, why would you want to tell me who you are? Anyway, I think there, there is this thing where identity maybe can tie these worlds together in tying this physical thing to this digital thing. Today in web three, a lot of it's purely digital and anonymous, but we're tying these together. We're starting to see funny things in where these connect, like in in the, the NFT world. And if you guys saw Nike issued a thing where they, they have these new collectible sneakers, but you actually buy the NFT. You don't, you're not buying the shoe yet. And then you can trade the NFT around and around. And then eventually if somebody wants the shoe, they burn the NFT and they get sent the shoe. So there, there are these concepts of tying these things together. And I think with identity and our data and all these things that are about real people in the real world, like we're going to start stitching those things. And I think some of that's just starting to come around. So I think it is an interesting space to, to play in now. Yeah, I think the idea of identity is, seems like a very natural fit, as we've already said. 
not only that, but the idea of having multiple identities, right? Like I have a, a face or an avatar that that I that represents me in certain contexts, but not in other contexts. And there's no obvious link unless you do the really hard sleuthing work of connecting these two representations of yourself. I think the challenge with things like healthcare data, obviously, is like things that go on chain kind of want to be public, <laughs> as Brian's kind of pointing out. And it seems like a challenge to me to say, okay, I'm just going to put all my health records on chain in this immutable structure. And then I'm just going to assume and hope that none of that will ever become hacked or the security of that will be compromised in some way. So it it doesn't mean that, that it's an impossible thing, but I think the whole idea of, oh, people own their own data, I think is completely elides the question of what kind of data are we talking about? Because these are good solutions for some kind of data and probably very bad solutions for other kinds of data. Yeah, that brings like the multiple representations of who you could be. It's like almost like a filtering of aspects of that data. But but again, when it's all on chain, is it all ultimately referenceable back to you? Or what are the layers of abstraction in front of that make it usable in real world cases versus the kind of the purity level where the technology wants to keep it? I'm one of those few people that don't see the ecosystem solving the identity issue directly, but I, I see the underlying technology maybe solving it. Like there might be a handful of startups that come out with identifiable wallets that are top, like similar to what ID.me does for their stuff. And, and, and maybe it's an ID.me company that, that comes out with an identifiable wallet that is validated and verified that it's who you are. And then that becomes your identity. But I, I have multiple wallets for a reason, right? Like I, I had my brother-in-law for his Christmas gift that I sent him some Bitcoin and <clears throat> I, I helped him set up Coinbase wallet separate from his actual Coinbase account. So I could teach him how to do it, how to set up the wallet. And Coinbase lets you like associate, a, create a username to associate to your wallet that is outside of your actual Coinbase account. So, so I had to explain to him the difference between this Coinbase account and the wallet that's on his physical phone. That is it's, it, his wallet. That it's, it's his Bitcoin directly on his wallet, that sort of thing. And then there's a conceptual difference there that you have to explain to people. But like, I'm not going to, you know, I, I might, I, I have that on my personal device and it, there's very, there's a handful of tokens on there, but my net worth isn't going to be on that wallet. Cause like you said, it's publicly available. So I'm going to have my own wallets that are separate, their, their, their own thing for trading, for doing other things. And I don't want to tie my LinkedIn to that. I don't want to tie, I don't want somebody to be able to be, turn around and be like, Hey, this is his net worth based off of this wallet that, that he's publicly said is his and that sort of thing. I think that's the reason why there's these two different worlds. On the one hand, you have the guys that are trying to just make money in this space and they don't necessarily want to put out their, how much they have in their bank account, essentially, versus, hey, maybe you have a handful of tokens for projects that you support and it's got your public name on it and that's great. Uh, but I don't think that the ecosystem is going to solve this. I think there will maybe be companies using this similar technologies that might try to solve the identity piece. Yeah, I don't know if you guys have seen on the healthcare data. I've seen a couple of different ways that people are organizing these things. Some of them is they're issuers and the data re- re- is retained in your own wallet. For the data that's bigger, people are doing things like what Audius is doing, where they have multiple signers, right? So Audius is like a streaming service that's blockchain related. So an artist can release a song. And that artist has credit for the song. The song actually gets broken up and encrypted with two different keys and then held on a server. And then it gets streamed to people and people can consume these things and then money can go to the artist. But you can't, you need basically multiple keys to be able to decrypt it. So Audius can't just do it and a person can't just do it. So I think there's ways to, to deal with the data that are coming that are cryptographically 
clear to where somebody would have to approve their data to be used for it to get done. Anyway, that's a technical point, but I think some of these solutions where the data is on some interplanetary file service or something, but it's broken up and, and encoded with multiple keys so no one can really do anything with the data without the person's approval. I think it's fun, the whole concept of technology advancing beyond our code of law or even ethics is really intriguing to me. Back to the point of the concept of people owning their own data. I was thinking, what's our most personal data? I think it's our DNA. And we leave this data all over the place. Like in a blockchain, anyone can reach out and grab it. And So what would happen if someone took some of my DNA, they found it in the trash, like I got a haircut or something, and in the not too distant future, and they clone me? Like, would I have any recourse? Should I have recourse? So do we really own our own data? I want to think so. I almost think that nature might be telling us otherwise. And so to think that because we have this technology, we're going to magically own our own data. Someone said before, like, it's it's not going to be hacked or taken or used. Yeah, I don't know. I think people won't really care until it's easy. I say people won't really care. I think that companies like Facebook and Google have shown everybody that convenience trumps privacy for most people in the world. So if it's difficult to own your own data, then a lot of people are not going to do it. And until it becomes very easy and the default for the platforms, that's when people, I think, in large will take on that responsibility and, and be okay with it. There is something here in, in Web3 that, that, that's really important that makes that even if somebody could steal and misuse your data, that's one thing. But imagine, so 23andMe is a good example where 23andMe has collected 10 million DNA samples. They don't have full DNA, they just have markers. But but now what they're doing is they're licensing that to drug companies. The drug companies will do drug discovery. They'll make billion dollar medicines. And you and I that contributed our DNA to 23andMe will not see any part of that. However, if it is my genome and it were done in a Web3 way, it could be known that I contributed and I could share in the revenue from that eventual downstream product. I think in healthcare data, that's what's going to happen in Web3. I, I think that's a model that's going to make a difference. If you're a 23andMe person and you know that you're going to benefit from these things and somebody wants to do a follow-on study with you, you might consider doing it, right? Versus now where it's just a, a harassment survey and maybe you do it out of the good of your heart. But, but I think that's where the impact's going to be, not that somebody couldn't take Ken's data and make a new Ken, you know, but I, I think it's going to be, uh, it's going to be around these things that kind of loop everyone into the benefit. So it really is more of a cooperative effort than, than simply the model that we've had. We could never be so lucky as to get two Ken's. <laughs> so I, I, I like the, the in-principle argument that Brian makes. I think the, the case with genetic data is questionable. Like how much do I get paid? Kind of depends on whether my brother did it or not, because the value of my data gets decreased if he's also getting paid. So there's a lot of genetic overlap. And, and this is not like a hypothetical. There's this whole effort that I don't know if 23andMe specifically, but a couple of these DNA companies help law enforcement with tracking down killers and that sort of thing using genetic evidence, like genetic relationships, essentially, where they rebuild the, the killer's genetic tree using your data, right? Yes, you don't get paid for it, but genetic, like, I think there's a weird thing with genetic data that, that probably is going to confuse us more than anything else. But I think I agree with the principle that Brian is espousing, which is that, that to the extent that you are providing information that is legitimately valuable, then at least there's a mechanism to be compensated for it. Although I would say one, one thing, like people always talk about a oh, Web3 is a solution to the ad-driven Web2 economy. 
And I'm extremely skeptical about that. Like Facebook's annual net income is like $30 billion. Divide that by whatever, 4 billion people that use Facebook. You're going to get cut a check for 50 bucks a year. Like it's just not, it's not a thing. Your data is just not that valuable in this ad world. Like it's only valuable to them in aggregate. But it's not to say that it can't happen for other things. Yeah, your point about the diversity of data, it is a significant one. The interesting thing is if you think about this, diversity of genetic data or I'm doing stuff in the mental health space, brain data, diversity of this is really important. And if my data set doesn't have data that your genome or your mind would provide, it it is short-term more valuable to me than getting more of the same data that I have. And that could be compensated for. If I'm trying to build out my data set so that, so that it has more value. People got paid in different COVID studies, like $150 to take the early vaccine before people had it over multiple trials. Those prices went up and down depending on where you were and what your diversity was because they needed a diverse population. I think that's okay. I think that's actually going to be a natural thing. And with you being able to connect to who these people are and what the diversity is, I think it's nice because all of that gets data driven. And that might mean you get paid twice as much as me, but I think that's okay. If you have some rare condition that I really need in my data set, that's, there's nothing wrong with that, I think. To, to Augustine's point about, I agree, I agree with you that it doesn't solve the ad space issue, right? Like you said, $50 a person for however many billions of people on the planet that are using Facebook. Uh, but what I think it does solve is participation. And what I mean by that is like crypto zombies and crypto kitties and all of those sort of gaming earn tokens for participating in gaming and, and doing all this sort of things. It's not too hard to imagine a world where, you know, if advertisers do say there's a web three version of Facebook that shows up in the future or something. And then you have advertisers that sign up for this web three version of Facebook that people are doing interactions and doing it's not too hard to imagine given the gaming aspect that we're seeing right now, a world where basically like people are potentially getting paid for participation. Now you get scarily close to dystopian scenarios similar to Black Mirror, where people are like on their bicycles and they don't want to stop playing the game because that's how they're going to eat the next day and stuff like that. But that's the world that I see in terms of like how that's possible. Like it's not everybody gets $50, but maybe like it actually pays the bills if I'm on this thing 24 seven and and I'm valuable enough for advertisers to be able to pay me for being on that thing 24 seven. Yeah. And I think that's, you're talking about how Facebook got their start, right? Twitter, like they, people put their stuff in and the benefit they get in sharing with family friends is Facebook gets the aggregate data for that. And I would participate in, so co-owner of a company here, we actually had to pay to put our data into Dun & Bradstreet. We had to pay to get information about DNB. But if I had a company and I knew I could anonymously through a wallet post my interesting financials in some DNB blockchain sort of thing, where then I could get the results I want. In the meantime, then I could also see that all of these other in aggregate businesses like mine are valued at X. And then I could have some kind of service like a Zillow or a... So I agree. I don't think people are going to pay me 50 bucks for anything, or whether it's my DNA or my business's financials. And yet, if we get something valuable for us that we actually can't really get today, not easily then I, I think you're right. Participation will drive 
progress here. Yeah, the Brave browser's been experimenting with this, right? Like they've been around for a while. They already you already get paid in Brave if you leave ads on. You can turn ads off. You can take that money and you can donate it or you can do other things. I think their play is really more about getting you used to a, a browser that has a wallet in it and, and all of that. But they're connecting that advertising. It's low amounts of money. I think I've had it turned on for six months or something and it's ten dollars or something. I don't know. It's it's low, but they're doing it, right? So I think it's I think it's interesting. I don't think the value is high. I think the value will be another thing. But there's definitely some role to play to leave at least me having the decision to have these things advertising come to me or not. With YouTube, right? I can pay YouTube to not have ads. It's not the same thing. It's not on chain, but it but it's the same idea, right? Where some money is transacting for these ads to be there or not. I think the insight there that Brian is pointing at is the idea that fundamentally it's the economics that defines these interactions, right? Like the nature of the database technology that you're using to store the information isn't the primary thing that we should be thinking about it. What are the economics of this? If I am getting YouTube for free, then obviously I am paying for it some other way. And if I want to pay 20 bucks a month or 10 bucks a month or whatever to to get a, a nice, slightly better version of YouTube or a much better version of YouTube, depending on how much YouTube you use, right? Then, then the economics are different. And I think that's not a blockchain thing at all. That's just, uh, let's think about economic models that make sense for different people, uh, segmenting the, the customer base, all the goodness that we've known for years. The story that I shared earlier with regards to Harvest and like the, the, the interaction was what that particular individual did legal or illegal and that sort of thing. Like we don't necessarily consider it illegal when a commodities trader goes in and, and, and does this, like leverages or arbitrages a difference at corn subsidies and that sort of stuff. And so I think there's an argument here to be said that these are nothing more than more complex financial instruments than what exists today, right? And, and you look at how complex financial instruments can get. There are, like, this is merely adding an additional layer of complexity to existing financial instruments as they stand. And so when you think of it that way, like it, it's not too hard to imagine a world where you might have a, a corn token and a beef token and a, and a pork token. And then suddenly you've got machines that are there. And that's not something, right? It's not something that the average person can handle. It's not something that the average person can do. And it will take millions of dollars of review and stuff to, to figure that out and decide whether or not that somebody is getting ripped off or not. But that's what we have today. If I go to sign a commodities contract, like I need a, a list of litany of attorneys and so forth to make sure that, my, that I'm doing a proper deal and I'm not literally losing my shirt on the deal. And so I, I definitely think that from the perspective of this technology, I, I wouldn't necessarily say that it's, it's a losing, like people aren't going to want to interact with it or people aren't going to want to deal with it because it's too complex. I just think it takes the complexity out of the hands of some and opens that complexity to anybody who is capable and or willing to learn and interact with it. And that's the, the, the power of, de of decentralized finance. It's the decentralization piece. Yeah, I guess it, at some level, it becomes a philosophical question. Like there are many financial products that are not available to retail people. If you want to interact in the interdealer market, you have to sign an ISDA with your prime broker. There's all sorts of stuff that you have to do if you want to do like real trading. And there's a reason for that. It's because these are webs of trust between counterparties that sort of you can't really replicate by just having random people come in. The other thing about it is, look, like there's lots of scams out there. And I think the thing about it is to the extent that you create financial complexity, you can always build a scam story around it. And so, again, it's a philosophical thing. Like, I am probably one of the very few people who has spent a lot of time on Wall Street that thinks that things like leverage ETF should probably be made illegal for retail people. Just because 
Nobody understands what these products are. They are completely opaque to 99.9% of people who trade them. And I don't know that sort of opening the kimono even wider strikes me as a great idea for, for people who are already having trouble not losing their shirts in financial transactions every day. Again, it's a philosophical question. Thank you for joining us in the CTO studio today, Ken, Frank, Brian, Augustine, Michael. Really awesome to grapple with these things together. If you like CTO Studio, do us a huge favor and give us a rating or a review. Really helps the cause. And head over to 7CTOs.com slash podcast and check out some of our popular episodes. And if you want to reach out to me, please just shoot me an email, Etienne at 7CTOs.com. We'll see you in 2022. Have a good one.